0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the industry argument to get ahead of the CMMC curve. Get that certification early, know that you're all
1: set, and you have a leg up on your competitors, because I think we'll see large crimes requiring this of their subcontractors, even if it's not in those subcontractors as well.
0: The VA's new front door could be the door for the whole of government.
1: In the civilian sector, you really do need something
2: for this. I mean, it would be great for industry to have a front door to the civilian market, not just have to do it, you know, by the 20 or so civilian cabinet agencies.
0: And perception versus reality in the cyber realm.
3: The perception to some degree is true, right? That um, cybersecurity exists to make things harder. And in reality, cybersecurity exists to make things more secure while allowing the
0: mission to be successful. It's Thursday, June 16th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Technology Modernization Fund Board will mark $100 billion for customer experience projects. High-impact service providers have until August 1st to apply for fast-track consideration of the funds. The board will consider applications after August 1st on a rolling basis through the end of the fiscal year, September 30th. The Defense Information Systems Agency can move forward with its Defense Enclave Services contract with Lidos. The Government Accountability Office denied a protest General Dynamics Information Technology filed against the award that could be worth up to $11.5 billion. DISO awarded the contract in February. GDIT filed its protest March 10th. You can find more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks is coming. August 24th, high-level leaders in government, industry and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at the thedailyscooppodcast.com. The cyber accreditation body working with the Defense Department has a new brand. The chief executive officer of what's now the Cyber AB, Matthew Travis, told you about the rebrand on Monday's Daily Scoop podcast. And he talked about the work the board will do to reach out to industry more. Eric Crucius is partner at Holland and Night. Eric, you've been my industry CMMC uh, whisperer. For a long time now what's your sense of where the board is now at communicating with industry what the expectations will be what the responsibilities will be and maybe most importantly what the costs are going to be welcome
1: right thanks thanks francis good to be here of course and and i'm happy to be your cmmc whisperer i've been called much worse (laughs) even today so uh that's that's a great question and then we could have the whole uh interview just just off that question um so you know i thought the brand rebranding even before they said anything about it at all i thought the rebranding was really interesting because it really kind of demonstrates a wider view that the accreditation body has about their role that it's not just going to be this program for dod and there were and and matt travis was pretty explicit in something that we've all thought and i've said for a while not just me but others too that this is going to be a requirement that spreads out across industry to civilian agencies um, probably even to industries that are not related to government contracts at all, um, where this, you know, if they do it right, this could be the gold standard. And even when you look at litigation associated with with cybersecurity breaches, courts are searching for standards that, that companies should have. And perhaps this will be the standard that the court reaches a court reaches for, even outside, again, the government contracts industry. So I think they see, and, and I do too, kind of this, Gold rush mentality, where industries and other agencies are going to be rushing to the AB to kind of get a CMMC certification, and they can ha- they could hold that up and say, "Look, we may have had a breach, but you know we went through this process, so you can't blame us for the breach. It was you know it was something a state actor did that we couldn't have anticipated, so we can't be held liable for it." So um, you know, I think that's that's the biggest signal there. On cost, I haven't seen a lot more about the cost. And I, I think that's something that, you know, and I've long said this, and this isn't new, but I, I think that's something that a mistake that DOD has made on us, where they haven't kind of tried to pay for some of the cost of contractors to be CMMC compliant, because it's driving small businesses that are already facing, you know, a regulatory regime, like no other, away from in, from doing business with the federal government. And I'm not saying that regulatory 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 regime is unnecessary um but it's there and necessary or not and uh, i think these costs of getting CMMC certified are not small even for a level 1 contractor and i you know it would be great if dod can can provide some kind of funding for companies especially small businesses to get to that point now dod has long said well they could put it in their gna and they could put it in their overhead and recover the cost that way after they win a contract but there's no guarantee they'll win a contract. And if a company is trying to do the right thing, get CMMC certified early, their GNA and overhead will be higher than their competitors that are not doing that. So all that leads to me saying again, I I hope that maybe DOD finds it in its budget to kind of help companies get CMMC certified, maybe pay for their certification. So that way they can attract more small businesses to the defense industrial base.
0: As you describe the potential impact uh, on the outcomes here, it strikes me that if this becomes something that companies can hold up and say, well, we have this certification, do we run the risk that then it becomes more of a compliance and liability protection exercise than an actual security exercise, which was kind of the point of it in the beginning, was that we didn't want that?
1: Right. And and Katie Amerton, when she helped lead the program in the beginning, Long said, this cannot be a check the box exercise. And she wasn't wrong about that, but when it comes to you know, a regulatory requirement, it's always going to fall, boil down to a check the box exercise. And unfortunately, you know it's going to be up to the contractors to make sure they're doing more than checking the box. And there are some contractors out there that have taken the initiative and are doing the right thing and going above and beyond because they recognize that the cost of a breach is a lot more than the cost of compliance up front and doing a little bit more to ensure that there is no breach. Obviously, you could do everything you want and that doesn't mean that you're 100% guaranteed not to have a breach. But I think a lot of contractors realize after the fact, after they've had a breach that they would have saved a lot of money by you know, talking to some specialists up front, getting compliance, but not just compliant, maybe doing a little bit more. and Because most breaches are preventable they're based on malware they're based on off of insiders not knowing you know not to click on a link they're based on not updating software patches and things like that 99% more than 99% of exploits are exploits that are known right now so a lot of it's preventable so i i hope that the that industry does take a look and, and look for ways to kind of get up to speed quicker and that'll co- save a lot of cost them because you know i've i've had many clients who have undergone a cybersecurity breach where I get that call on a Friday night, right? The infamous Friday night call as I'm sitting down to dinner, which Mm -hmm. has happened a few times. And they have 72 hours under the DOD uh, regulation, 252-204-7012, to provide a response. And we're working the weekend to try to get a response within 72 hours. And, you know, I don't charge more on the weekends. (laughs) I don't charge time and a half. But it's not an expensive endeavor to do that initial response and then all the follow-up that's required and then the DOD investigation that may happen after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cost of compliance is much cheaper.
0: Are, are there other concerns, questions, problems that companies talk to you about, Eric, or are these the big ones? Understanding exactly what's going to be expected of them and how much it might cost them to do it. Are those the big two?
1: Those are the big two. I think some other concerns I've heard I've heard that are probably don't rise to that level is, you know, what happens if we do everything right and we don't get that certification. And we have this multi hundred million dollar contract that's sitting out there that we can't perform, that we're not allowed to perform anymore because of our lack of certification. Now, we haven't really seen the process where certifications could be can be appealed, but there is going to be such a process that I imagine will look somewhat like the GAO protest process, perhaps but more expedited. But I think there are some contractors that are concerned. And I think the answer to that, is that you know is that, they're going to be offering the CM, I almost said cmmc the, <laughs> the cyber AB is going to be offering a program where you can kind of get certified early. And my understanding of that program is that you'll get that extra time, so you won't lose time um, on the front end, on the back end of how long that certification is good for. And I think that's that's a wise idea for contractors that are concerned about it, to get that certification early, know that you're all set, and you have a leg up on your competitors. Because I think we'll see large primes requiring this of their subcontractors, even if it's not in those subcontractors as well.
0: Eric Crucius, great to talk to you as always. Thanks for your insight, my friend.
1: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: You can read more about the changes at the Cyber AB in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. A programming note, next Monday, the Daily Scoop podcast will observe the Juneteenth federal holiday. I'll be with you tomorrow, off Monday, no show, and then back on Tuesday, June 21st with a brand new Daily Scoop podcast. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a new Pathfinder. It is a website that the VA hopes will facilitate innovation in contracting. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting. He's former Principal Executive Director of the Office of Acquisition Logistics and Construction at VA. Greg, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What do you see on this website that is uh, helpful to the VA and will also be helpful for industry to get them plugged in into what's going on at VA? Welcome.
2: Thanks, Francis. Great to be with you as always. And I, I think you you did nail the, the two aspects of this. The VA is doing this to be helpful for them and helpful to industry. I, mean, I certainly heard when I was at the VA from industry about, you know, how do we engage with the VA? It's a huge organization, a vast bureaucracy. You know, we don't know who to go to. How do we find the right customer, the connection? We've got a great idea. It, it maybe the idea is mature and they're looking for a pure acquisition play, or maybe the idea is something they're formulating and they're looking for either a cooperative research development agreement or some partnership. The VA has a long history of doing great research, but they're just not sure how to move forward. And so this is one of the things I think that Mike Parish and the VA put together to try to provide kind of a front door uh, for the VA for industry to go to and really pick one of those paths. Is it acquisition or is it innovation? And I think for the VA, they get a better way to engage with industry to get those ideas and inputs in. And the industry now has kind of a clearer path to engage with what is a very large and complex organization.
0: What's there now on that site, Greg? And what do you think would be most useful for VA to have there as the site matures and as these relationships start to form?
2: So what's there at the site now is uh, really this two questions about are you interested in acquisition or innovation? They have a lot of FAQs about it. Uh, and one of the things that's key to the site now is they're also uh, putting forth a commitment to get back to an entry within seven days uh, with a real response, not a, you know, thanks for your interest, we'll get back to you. Uh, but they're really investing in staffing this to get back with the industry. And I think the site is very open. Uh, there's a way on the site to provide some input. The industry, I think the VA is looking at this as an agile approach. Uh, they didn't take a year to develop something and wait and wait and put it out. They put out something that is useful and then looking for industry as they engage with it to help make it better, which, which I think I mean, that's similar to the approach they took on the supply chain modernization as well.
0: You're not just a VA veteran. You're a veteran of a number of federal agencies. What have you seen both your time in government now that you've been out? would be successful for VA or any agency to really facilitate that dialogue with industry, especially that your DOD is trying to crack the non-traditional industrial base for years and has really put a concerted effort toward that. What do you see, what have you seen that really works, Greg? Uh,
2: What really works is investing resources, right? When the industry goes in and they put something forward and they don't hear back three months, six months, nine months ever, uh, they're going to quit coming to the organization with what their ideas are. And particularly, and with this administration, with a focus on bringing in non-traditional players into the federal marketplace and looking for those uh, underutilized uh, businesses as well, you, you know, all federal agencies need a way to provide a channel for industry to come in. And what's really worked is invest in that. And if industry brings an idea and the organization looks at it and says, hey, we understand it, but we don't think there's a play here, then provide that feedback to industry and let them know. And so they'll start looking at other opportunities or if there's some interest then let them know and then start to have that conversation and see where it matures.
0: There's a tremendous amount of value it seems to me too, eventually. And I know this is a, a, a nascent effort, is undertaking it now and, and I think that's great. But it strikes me there's an opportunity too for VA to potentially be the curator for the entire civilian sector here. I mean, VA has such an influence on what it needs and and what then vendors may be able to deliver for other parts of the government that it could wind up, you, you term it a front door, it could wind up being a front door for maybe more more rooms in the house than just VA, right?
2: I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the VA is having some internal discussions about that. Is there a role that they can play uh, a larger role across the executive branch and and be a uh, kind of a, a thought leader and executive leader for this, or, or maybe be asked to help, you know, look at broadening this across the federal marketplace, uh, because in the civilian sector, you really do need something for this. I mean, it would be great for industry to have a front door to the civilian market, not just have to do it, you know, by the 20 or so civilian cabinet agencies. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. This could be kind of a test case and a prototype or something that would have a large application across the federal sector.
0: Because the, the, the thing that I think is potentially a risk is if another agency says, oh, VA is doing this and this is a really good idea. We'll do it, too. Then you wind up with, you know, 23 CFO act civilian right. agencies that have their own in, in innovation portals. And I'm not right. sure that. Really helps anybody.
2: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure doing it uh, 23 times is the right answer, right? right. It, it, how do you manage that uh, that duplication? You may not want to have a single uh, opportunity, but how do you manage that redundancy and duplication in a way that's good for industry and good for the federal sector?
0: I asked you a little bit earlier about what's on this site when it uh, when it matures, but what does the innovation dialogue look like? And not just necessarily at VA, maybe more broadly across government. What does that look like when it matures? And, and I'm thinking five years out, 10 years out, what, and the reason I ask that is what do we need to do now to get to that vision, Greg?
2: Right. So I think one of the things that uh, all agencies need to think about, and I know the VA is, is working through this is to have kind of a, agency-wide sandbox uh, for innovation. And the VA is really looking at a facility they have down in Orlando. The Simulation Center as a hub for that. Uh, They have Dr. Ryan Vega, who's heading up innovation uh, at the VA and really trying to provide an opportunity for industry to come in through a structured process and and do some of those initial learnings uh, because it's so important to get it off the proposal or get it off the words on a paper and start to put it in an environment that separator, right? the last thing you want to do in a particular healthcare environment is start to introduce innovations that haven't really been vetted and proven out. So having that structure and mechanism, kind of a sandbox to bring those innovations in and try them out, I think is going to be critical. And the VA is certainly focused on
0: that. You sent me a note the other day that you were looking at this uh, supply chain modernization draft statement of work at VA. What's that encompass and, and what's the potential uh, ramifications of that, Greg?
2: So that's a, uh, an effort the VA has been working on for several months to look at the broad enterprise level supply chain management covering uh, med surge items, prosthetics, pharmaceuticals, uh, core supplies to really take an integrated approach on this. Right? And they had a lot of webinars, uh, they've had probably 50 plus one-on-ones with industry and now following another best practice of putting out a draft document for industry to look at and provide comments on.
0: If you were commenting, what would you comment?
2: I, I would say uh, keep to the approach. This Sue's the right way. This is too complicated for any government agency to come up with a statement of work uh, and to be open to some of the input from industry to make sure that what you're trying to communicate is what they're hearing. It's, it's easy to put a draft out. It's a little harder to be open to the input. So I would encourage them to be open to the input.
0: Greg Giddens, it's great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you.
2: Always a pleasure, Francis.
0: Thanks. You can read more about both of those things Greg talked about at the VA in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. One of the core pillars of the federal data strategy is treating data as a strategic asset. Justin Hodges is director and integrated product team lead cybersecurity service provider at Naval Information Warfare Center Atlantic. He tells my Fedscoop colleague, Wyatt Cash, how his organization's approaching data as a strategic asset.
3: One of the things that we do uh, is we don't just talk about it, right? So talk is cheap when it comes to policies and um, uh, buzzwords like treating uh, data as a strategic asset. And so what we have to do is first figure out what our most critical data is, and then figure out how to protect it. Um, The other thing we need to do is take a look at what data we're collecting um from a strategic standpoint and uh focus on collecting those things uh those pieces of data that actually drive decisions um so data storage retention collection all of those things can get very pricey very complicated um very quickly and so in order to to manage it in a uh, you know bite size achievable form focus on the data that you need and that data that you need is the ones that drive decision um as far as uh, zero trust architecture so um uh, there's a lot out there um, and some of it's good. some of it's bad when it comes to zero trust architecture. Um, there's a lot of framework and models, and that's really what zero trust is it's it's a methodology, right so it's not a um, solution. you can just go out and buy something and magically you're going to have zero trust architecture. It's really about um, a, a new paradigm approach to how we do uh, network security um going away with um, you know, uh, exceptions and um, trusted devices, trusted users, and really trusting nothing um, and validating those connections. Um, and so really from an approach standpoint, it's all about not baking in uh, exceptions, right? So it's about uh, looking at all of your, your network topology, the networks that your networks connect to um, and and whittling it down so that there is no trust or trust is minimalized within your your network architecture as well as um, to other uh, uh, partner networks that you're connected to. Um, And so uh, like all things security-wise, that methodology has to be tailored to your architecture, to your network host uh, monitoring capabilities. um, And then of course balanced against what your your mission and your uh, availability needs are. Um, One of the things that we encounter in cybersecurity a lot is uh, the the perception, to some degree it's true, right, that um, cybersecurity exists to make things harder. And in reality, cybersecurity exists to make things more secure while allowing the mission to be successful. So it's a trade-off and one that requires frequent interaction um, and discussion at uh, senior levels and functional levels.
4: Well, and then thinking about how zero trust and endpoint security intersect, um, how has endpoint security evolved around um, users' own devices, that sort of uh, bring your own device concept, and government furnished equipment, and uh, how has that evolved over the last twelve months or so to coincide with zero trust practices? And. Um, and if you would, you know, how are you seeking to better secure data under these types of endpoint security models?
3: Yeah, so so great question. So a lot has happened, especially with with COVID-19 uh, push to maximize telework and remote work. Um, you know, several years ago, talking about bring your own devices or BYOD was really something that, uh, you know, maybe uh, super special units got to do, but those of us didn't. Um, and so where it comes to zero trust architecture, um the the old you know single unified paradigm of looking at the endpoint security zero trust and and government or organizational furnished equipment was um i don't want to make it sound simple it, it it was not right but but it was a known quantity right and so the paradigm shifted with the advent of bring your own device um and so like uh, a lot of things we're we're still analyzing how to best leverage bring your own device um, and there's a lot of Uh, new opportunities that are being tested and and piloted in a lot of different places. Um, But really, when it comes to evaluating the difference between GFE versus, say, a a bring-your-own-device, it's what you can monitor and particularly what you can trust, what you shouldn't trust, and segregating those things that are sensitive on the network um, from those that uh, are, are not trusted um and, and those things that are sensitive would include your data repositories and that's how that dovetails into your to your um treating data data
4: as strategic asset and protecting data well, that certainly makes sense um and then perhaps last justin let me just briefly ask you know the supply chain attack involving solar winds about a year ago that compromised government and commercial it networks really highlighted the ability for hackers to Compromise certificates uh, or root of trust uh, between products, and uh, you know, move undetected across an enterprise. So, what advice would you offer to organizations to protect their data from you know an apparent trusted user in this case? And are, are user behavior analytics and policies enough to really defend against these advanced insider threats?
3: Yeah. Also, um, uh, great question. Probably my favorite question uh, uh, that you've asked so far um so uh we have to think about trusted users as a paradigm um or as 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 two different paradigms so in one case there's trusted users who probably or perhaps should not be trusted and can do um you know, uh criminal things or things that they're not supposed to do um and then there are uh sophisticated malicious cyber actors who masquerade as uh trusted insiders um for nefarious purposes um, there's a lot of different technologies that are out there, user activity monitoring, user behavior analytics um, that are used to, to baseline those things. Um, ultimately, when it comes to protecting and monitoring and defending against trusted uh, insiders, whether or not that's an actual trusted insider or um, a, 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 an outsider masquerading as a trusted insider, uh, User Behavior Analytics or UBA as well as UEM can be incredibly helpful at combating that. But I would say I would go so far as to say they're not a panacea, right? They're not a um, you can go out and procure the solutions um, in of themselves, uh, procuring the software, configuring the software, um, figuring out how to leverage it and monitor it and program it um, are are major steps along the road. But, um, you know, the DoD has insider threat programs the digital aspect user activity monitoring, user behavior analytics are just parts of the component or cogs within the machine. Um, They're they're not all of it. So um, they're not robust enough of themselves to defend against it. But when paired with um, other monitoring capabilities, um, and um, programs, it can be successful.
0: Justin Hodges of NYWIC Atlantic. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put this show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.